My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Three wonderful readings from the Old Testament, the Epistle, and the New Testament this morning, focusing on the temptation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, contrasted with the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden by the serpent. And in the beginning of the reading from Genesis chapter 2, we see the the author is going back in time a little bit, right? So in chapter 1, we get the description about creation in six days with God resting on the seventh. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we go back again to that creation story and the focus expands, right? So Chapter 1 is sort of an outline of this is how God, this is the, God's act of creation. And then chapter 2 goes back and focuses on something in particular, specifically God's creation of humanity. God creates man, gives him the garden, and the mandate to cultivate the earth and spread God's goodness to all creation. And then God takes from the side of the first man and creates woman. No, no, it's fun to note that, that, that men, like, yeah, we're created from dust, and women get created from something a lot better. So, ladies, that's your, that's your chance, ladies, to say amen. amen. <laughs> so anyway, God gives them one command. He says, every, every, everything that you see here in the garden, right, you can eat of every tree, except for this one right here. Now, if you were paying attention, you might remember uh, what, two weeks ago, we talked about the words of what St. Athanasius said, where he talks about God giving humanity two things. Remember, we talked about he gives mankind a place and he gives mankind a law. And he gives them these two things, right? And so what the law does is to help keep them moving towards the goal, which is union with God, right? And so he gives these two things, this place, this is where you are, this is, your, this is where you're going to dwell, this is your divine task I've appointed you to do, and then here is the law to go with it to guide you as you do that. And so we talked about how humanity can go either way, right, towards the good or turn themselves towards towards the bad, right? And so we know from reading the story that we just heard this morning, this is humanity's turn away from life towards sin and death, right? And so the result of this temptation, the result of the sin of of Adam and Eve in the biblical story is to show us this is how sin enters the world, not through an act of God, not through God ordaining it, right? But sin and death enter the world through human sinfulness and human disobedience, Excuse me. And in the reading, we see Satan's strategy, right, for how he tempts them. And he's going to use the same strategy a little bit later in the sermon. I'll show you to, to tempt Jesus, right? So what he does is he, he, he makes something forbidden seem like it's actually good, <laughs> All right? So there's this, who knows, everyone talks about them eating an apple. It doesn't say apple, it just says the fruit, right? We have no idea what it it was, right? So the idea here is, here's something forbidden. If it's forbidden, well, why is it forbidden? Calling into question, why is it forbidden? It looks good, 
right? It says the woman looked at it and it, was, it looked like it was ready to be eaten. It was a delight to the eyes. And we see that sin actually can look really good. And then what Satan does is he makes any reasonable instruction to refrain from or to stay away from what is forbidden a bad thing. Right? God says, stay away. Don't do that. And the devil's like, yeah, is it really going to hurt you though? Did God really say? I mean, look how good it looks. It looks pretty delicious. I'd eat it too, but I mean, I'm not. I'm not hungry. I'm sure you guys are. Look how great that is. It probably smells really good. It's not going to hurt you. God's being unreasonable. The serpent, the tempter, the Satan, he casts God as the one who is keeping them from something that they really need or really want. Reinterpreted as a need. It's almost as if He's saying these guardrails that God has put in place of a place and a task in a law, right? That these, these guardrails are unreasonable because God is obviously trying to keep you from something good. God is trying to keep from you something that you need. God is trying to keep something from you that it's actually your right to have. There's some ministers out there who reading this story actually say, no, the serpent is the hero of the story. Have you ever heard that? I have. It's garbage. They'll say the ser serpent is the, is the hero because he's trying to give humanity secret knowledge that God is keeping away from them because God was stuffy or God was mean or God was unreasonable. And what Satan does is he casts, always casts God as the one who's the killjoy. He always casts one as the God who's, you know, the, the, the stuffy, uptight friend in the group that never wants to do anything fun because they're always scared about what happens if you get caught, right? But that's not who God is. That's not what God does. God places guardrails. And guardrails in our society, brothers and sisters, are not seen as, as a, a means of grace. They're not seen as, as God's act of protecting us from things that we should not have, right? In our culture, our society, in our day and age, guardrails are seen as God really wants to control your behavior. Or what people will say is they'll get up and say, well, no, God doesn't really want to control your, your behavior. The people in the church want to control your behavior, they don't like these things, so they tell you, you can't do that. And so what happens is sometimes people even start to play the role of the serpent. God didn't really say that. I mean, it's in his word, it's in scripture, but did God really say that? No. Did God really mean that? No. And everything comes to be seen as the powerful are always trying to keep from the people who don't have power, something that they should have. And we take that framework and we take that motif, which doesn't owe anything to the scriptures. It actually owes more to, uh, to Nietzschean philosophy, right? The, uh, the, the power is, is everything that matters. The search for power and control. And th I'm not saying that that's wrong. There are people who have used power in a bad way as power as a means of control. There are people who have done that throughout history. The problem is, is when we take that narrative, that framework, and then we read that back and interpret everything, not just in the scriptures, but in culture and society and politics, everything turns into power. 
The serpent is doing all of this right here in the garden. God is the villain. He's keeping you away from something good. He's actually keeping you from reaching your full potential. He's keeping you from realizing your identity. He's keeping you from becoming your authentic self. The great lie told is, is if you do this act, then you will not die. And this lie of, of not dying is attached to every single sin that we do. If you do this sin, you will not die. But the scriptures remind us the wages of sin is what? Is death. And they both eat. Do they both die? Well, not immediately. But yes, they do eventually. Right? We, we would look at this text and say, well, they die spiritually, yes. But they also die physically because this introduces death and corruption into the world. Now, here's the thing. If you're walking down the street and a little Pomeranian comes by and you kick it out of the way, right? I'm just using a stupid sin that no one's going to do, okay? That'd probably be a sin because Pomeranians are annoying, but they're, they're kind of cute too, right? Every act, a little act of sin that we do is a little turn of the human soul away from God, right? To use an even sillier example, okay? This'll, this'll, maybe this will work better. Okay, have you ever had, and I, I've had it not many times, mind you, but I have. I saw a thing in a restaurant one time where it was a hamburger, and it was made, instead of a bun, right? They, they, they had bacon and everything on it, but instead of a bun, they had a donut cut in half, and they put the burger in the middle of that donut. Let me tell you something, that was delicious. <laughs> but it was very bad for me, which is why I don't eat that all the time. But here's the thing, if I was to eat that burger with the donut uh, bun and the bacon and the cheese and all that delicious stuff, all of God's good uh, uh, grillable vegetables, right, added on top of that to kind of make it seem healthy when it's not, right? If I were to eat that for every meal every single day, what would happen to me? My arteries would get clogged, my cholesterol would go up, I would have uh, heart issues, I'd be lethargy, all that stuff. Because you can't survive, you can't be healthy just eating that one thing because there's so much fat in it, there's sugar in the donut, all of that stuff. And I see sin kind of like that, is eating a delicious burger with a donut instead of a bun every day for every meal. It's delicious, but the more you do it, the worse you're going to get, slowly but surely. Sin is the vehicle by which death is at work in the world. Results aren't always immediate. But expulsion from paradise will come. Now in Romans, St. Paul, he lays out the underlying theology of what's happened in the Garden of Eden by Adam and Eve's sin, right? And he says that through one man, sin enters in the world and death spread to all because all sinned. In other words, we are all sinners, right? We cannot help to sin without God's grace, right? Now this doesn't mean that as human beings we can't ever do anything good because, because we can. But what we cannot do is reunite ourselves to God because sin and death have corrupted us. But what he says is, he says here, through Jesus Christ, we receive grace freely, as well as the gift of righteousness. And righteousness is our being reconciled to God. It is something God gives to us as a free gift of his free grace. Now, there will be some, uh, some Protestants who will say, well, righteousness is something imputed to us, right? So, so in other words, God looks at us, he declares us righteous, he sees Christ's righteousness kind of on us instead of our own. 
And then he declares it to be so, so we are righteous. Now, the conflict there is with our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. They'll say, no, grace, divine grace, is infused into the human soul, right? So the righteousness that we are given is an actual righteousness given in our, in our hearts, where our hearts are, are made new, right? It's not just something God has declared to be so. It is something we actually have received and experienced. So those two views come into conflict. There's a, a, a wonderful Anglican theologian named E.L. Mascallon. One of the things he wrote in one of his books is he said, okay, he, the way he puts it is like this. He's like, we're trying, like the fight is between both of those things. So he says this. He says, when God created the world, God, what did God declare? Like when, like when God created light, what did God say? He said, let there be light, right? Looks fiat, light be. God declared it and what happened? Light is created, right? Light is created. So what Mascal says, and I think he's right, is when God declares us, or when God declares something to be so, it actually becomes so. It actually is created in us, or, or, or it is done in the earth, right? So when God declares us to be righteous, right, the righteousness that is a gift from Christ, right, when God declares us to be so, it's something that actually happens to us. It's an actual transformation and the healing of our souls. And, and this is through the cross and the resurrection. But I think it's also important to note here that bound up with all of that is the story that we heard read from the gospel according to St. Matthew about Christ's temptation in the wilderness. Right? So, so Adam and Eve disobeyed God and fell into sin by yielding to the temptation by the serpent, by the tempter. Jesus, after 40 days of fasting, has a similar experience. Now, it's interesting, right? Adam and Eve in the Genesis story, where are they? They're in the garden. They have a great, right? It's paradise set aside, right? We could, we could talk for hours about ancient Near East views of paradise and gods and all that stuff. We won't. Maybe we'll do a Bible study on it someday. But they are tempted in the garden, around, surrounded by all of God's good gifts. Where is Jesus tempted? He's tempted in the desert. He's tempted in the wilderness, right? So they're tempted in a place surrounded by provision and all of these things and the water and the fruit of all the trees all over the place, right? And the delicious animals. I don't know who, maybe they weren't vegetarians. Maybe they were, who knows, right? We don't know, right? But Jesus is in the desert. There's nothing in the desert. Shrubs, little pockets of water and stuff here and there. He's been fasting from food for 40 days, so he's really hungry, right? And the desert as opposed to paradise. Paradise is the place that God creates or where God dwells, right? And brings his people to live among him, right? Which is why they get expelled when they sin. The desert is the place where evil was seen to be, where the evil spirits were, right? So think about this. In the day of atonement, when the priest would lay hands on the goat, they would send it out, bearing the sins of the people, where would they send the goat out to? The desert, the wilderness. Why? Because in a sense, they're taking the sins of all the people and sending it back to the source of sin, right? So Jesus goes into the wilderness. He steps into, he goes to the devil's home turf, right? He goes, uh, the devil has home court advantage here. Well, that's not true. It's a stupid example. But right, he goes to the desert. He goes into the desert, right? The realm of Satan. And the tempter comes to him. And this is the same tempter in the garden that smooth-talked Adam and Eve out of paradise. And his approach to Jesus is the same. Hey, are you hungry? 
See that stone over there? You could turn it into delicious bread. You know you could if you wanted to. You know we know that you're the son of God. Right in the gospels the demons are going to say you are the son of God. And Jesus is going to tell them to shut up. Because he doesn't want demons testifying to his divine identity. You could use your divine prerogatives to fulfill your human hunger. Don't you want to get something in that belly of yours? You've, been, you've had nothing but water for 40 days. I, I tell you, you'll probably create a nice piece of bread and it'll smell good like it just came out of the oven. You are the son of God. Oh, what about this, Jesus? Look at, look at the world. Look at the kingdoms of this world. Look at their splendor. Wow, look at the, look at the pyramids of Giza. Look at the Sphinx. Right? Look, look, look at Rome. Look at all of their architectural marvels and their wonders. Look at the glory of all of this. I'll give it to you. What's the cost? Oh no, just bow down before me and this will all be yours. Have you ever heard the term, it's better <laughs> to, to, to rule in hell than to serve in heaven? That's a terrible saying. And people who say that have no idea what they're saying. Right? Because heaven, well, it's a, it's a, the idea of ruling and power are above all, right? And the devil gives Jesus like this shortcut to rule and power above all. But here's the thing. Jesus is already the master of the world. Because the scriptures tell us, St. Paul will tell us, that he is the one through whom all things were made. We're going to confess that in the creeds, right? Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. So and, and everything already belongs to him anyway. And then the devil takes him to the temple mountain. He's like, okay, uh, you know, Psalm 91, he will give his angels charge over you and they will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So why don't you just take a running jump off of this mountain? The angels are going to catch you. God said it. Jesus even says about going to the cross. He's like, I could call legions of angels and they would come and they'd take me down off the cross and, and, and you know, Pay all these people back for what they've done. God said all. God said the angels would catch you. So brothers and sisters, Jesus is getting like full court press temptation, right? Adam and Eve, they get tempted in the garden, but Jesus gets tempted with multiple things, right? All of the things that Adam and Eve lost through their yielding to temptation, Jesus, by not yielding to temptation or submitting to temptation or listening to the tempter, right? What he's done is, He's reversed the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. And every time he says no, he quotes the scriptures until the tempter gives up and leaves him. And it's interesting, not in the selection from Matthew, I think, I think it's in Luke, where it says the tempter departed from him until a more opportune time, right? So that's not the only time the tempter and Jesus are duking it out. The tempter is going to come back in different ways. We don't know how that is, but it's a, little, it's a little comment there in one of the Gospels. That wasn't the end of the story. See, Jesus is showing us how God is renewing and redeeming who and what he has made. Jesus' resistance to the tempter's temptation schemes, right? This is our pattern for our own resistance. See, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, that means, as it said in our reading from Romans, death reigned. Death reigned. But what Christ does through his resistance of temptation and going to the cross and his resurrection is that life reigns, not death. And if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Old things have passed away, the new has come. 
We have been reconciled to God. Death no longer reigns over us. The only thing death has sway over us in is our own mortality, right? We're still human. We are still going to die. But guess what? That's not where that ends. Because if we are in Christ, his life reigns in and through us. Which means that his life is given to us. It is our life. That means that death has not the final word over us. He does. And he will tell us, rise. And we will. But not just that, right? Because if, if we are reigning in life through Christ as opposed to, to death reigning over us, then that means his strength in the desert is our strength too. It's his strength given to us. Right? And now that we've seen the pattern of temptation and we've seen the pattern of resistance, we can then utilize it ourselves. We can utilize it ourselves. Because this is going to be a fight that we're not just going to have one time. And we're in Lent. And a lot of us are asking, you know, oh God, please look inside and examine my heart. That's a dangerous thing to pray and to ask. Because when you do, guess what? He's going to. Examine my heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. And God will say, okay, sure. And then he shows us what our besetting sins are. And he's like, how about you work on that? And then we want to pull an Adam and Eve. Like, no, no, I don't want to do that. Right, a lot of times those besetting sins are things that lead us to temptation, right? One of my besetting sins is that I'm selfish. Sometimes I want what I want, when I want it. And I don't care. What are one of your besetting sins that lead you to temptation? I don't want to eat a, a burger donut all the time. But when I see one, I kind of want one all the time. Right? I'm selfish. I can be selfish. And so part of my walk is God teaching me to reprioritize, to relearn my passions. Right? The passions that... The Bible says, wage war against our souls. And so because Christ triumphed in the desert, we can triumph too. And for some of us, it might not be a spectacular showdown with the tempter in the wilderness. For some of us, it might just be walking by the outlets and not going inside and buying something we don't need. For some of us, it's maybe... I've told you the story one time I went to Chipotle and I went up to the counter, I was going to buy a second burrito and then I just, I was like, no, I probably shouldn't because it's probably not healthy and I'm glad that I didn't, right? Because that was bad, right? It's just, I'm using silly examples here, right? Because we can laugh at those examples but it shows us something deeper, I think. And it also doesn't make us feel targeted or it makes me feel targeted and lets you laugh at me and learn the lesson I'm trying to tell. But I can take it. So through Christ... Life reigns. Life reigns. Sin no longer reigns over us. Death no longer reigns over us. And so as we continue through Lent, as God continually shows us the contents of our hearts, right? as God shows us the things and the areas we are being tempted to, into, we can say like Jesus. We can quote the scriptures. We can use the scriptures, right? We can use the scriptures. So during this Lenten season, don't just take on devotional reading. You should, but also read the scriptures. Read the Psalms, the prayer book of the church. 
read the Psalms, read the Gospels, soak yourself in Scripture, soak yourself in things not of this world. And as we do so, may the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ and his reign of life continually strengthen us throughout this Lenten season into life everlasting. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God.